There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Rishi Sunak, the wealthiest MP in history, becomes the new Prime Minister. Campaign group Just Stop Oil under threat from a new bill targeting peaceful protests. Battersea Power Station finally opens, with flats on sale for £7 million, despite an 11,000-person waiting list for housing in the borough. And new developments on the Barbican site are scaled back after a backlash. My name is Finn Harper. I'm an architecture critic and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture, housing and planning news. Welcome to The Lundown. My guest this week at Bureau and Design District is Aidan Dekadem. Aidan is a councillor at Shaftesbury in Queenstown Ward in Wandsworth and cabinet member for housing. So it's a huge pleasure to have you back on the show. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. On Tuesday the 25th of October, that's this week, Rishi Sunak became the third British Prime Minister in as many months after he ended up winning the Tory leadership race after all rival candidates formally pulled out. The weeks of political chaos in Number 10 have received blanket coverage across the national media, but what does a Sunak government look like for London? In comparison to the last Tory leadership contest, which concluded just six weeks ago, this time around there has been almost no time for scrutiny of the candidates with no interviews, no solid policy proposals or votes held to determine a winner. In a brief speech delivered on Monday, Sunak pledged to simply, quote, work day in, day out to deliver for the British people. Now, at the time of recording, Sunak has yet to publicly put forward much of a plan to stabilise the economy or tackle the rent crisis or fuel crisis facing the UK households this winter. But nonetheless, uh, the big issue has this week uh, published an article kind of speculating about what a Sunak government might look like, and the Architects Journal has covered the industry's response to the former Chancellor's win. So RIBA President Simon Alford, for example, uh, called on Sunak to provide four things – adequate housing supply, a well-resourced and efficient planning system, a national retrofit strategy, and an effective building safety regime. Aiden, we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon. This show goes out on uh, Thursday morning about 6 a.m. So <laughs> everything is changing so fast, it's entirely possible there'll be more changes by tomorrow, more cabinet reshuffling, who knows. But from what we know so far, what can we deduce uh, about a kind of Rishi Sunak-led government. Uh, he's not said much about his policy ideas, but what do you think his time as Prime Minister will look like for Britain and for London? Sunak, you have to remember, under the Boris Johnson regime, was the man in the Treasury who was holding the purse strings, who was trying to limit the new kind of Conservative Party that was more comfortable 
with ideas like levelling up and infrastructure spending. Rishi Sunak was always on the right and, and far more austere. So we're kind of coming back from a much more kind of right-wing, I guess, vanguardist project of Liz Truss towards a more traditional mainstream institutional thinker. I mean, this is, this is the Goldman Sachs prime minister, right? Uh, this is someone who's one of the wealthiest people in, in the country and has a, a background in hedge funds and, and the financial markets. So for me, it's, it's capital really trying to stabilise the crisis that has been caused. And it'll be interesting to see how that holds politically. And the cabinet is clearly an attempt to try and hold those forces together. Speaking of the cabinet, um, Michael Gove has been reinstated as housing secretary, an office he held for 10 months under Boris Johnson. Um, during his sort of previous tenure, he was to some extent able to break the impasse on building safety uh, and made a number of amendments to the building safety bill. Um, I thought it was also quite interesting that he blocked the development of the tulip, this kind of colossal tower in the city centre, um, citing kind of climate change concerns, citing the kind of carbon impact that that building would uh, bring. Um, you know, what do you, what do you make of Gove's reinstatement under Sunak? So I think Michael Gove is is very interesting. I think he's interesting largely because he has he has a hegemonic view about how you do politics, and he's understood that the Conservatives are desperately desperately lacking when it comes to housing policy, and an entire generation shut out from ownership and trapped in the private rented sector will turn away from the Conservative parties, and that is an electoral cliff edge. He has a language and an understanding of the crises facing renters, and he wants to uh, make sure that the Conservative parties uh, is not falling behind, and that they can kind of make sure that they build an electorate in their image. And I I think that, that offers opportunities for those of us who believe in you know, the, the, the necessary housing reform to kind of change the hellscape that many of us face in, in, in particularly in places like London. So it's, it's there's, there's, there's a kind of inherent tension there based on how our economy is, is really kind of captured by the, the house prices. Um, and it, it almost revealed itself in terms of the effect that Liz Truss had on, on mortgages. I mean, that, that really was a serious threat to the fundamentals of the Conservative Party and they got rid of her because we, we know that around 30% of uh, people with mortgage holders are going to now struggle for payments given what's happened in terms of the fluctuation and crisis in the economy. So, so you know, it's something the Conservative Party thinks deeply about, you know, what are the interests of homeowners and what are the interests of house prices and, and Gove is navigating that, that terrain. So look, in his summer campaign against uh, Liz Truss, Sunak pledged to insulate a lot of houses. Um, do you think that will change? You know, the, the mini budget uh, massively increased the cost of uh, government borrowing uh, by crashing the pound. Um, energy, the energy crisis hasn't gone away. If anything, it's worse than ever. Uh, but it, it seems kind of less likely that uh, we're going to get massive government intervention to upgrade insulation across the board. Um, as cabinet member for housing in Wandsworth, what are you looking for from the government on the energy crisis and particularly on insulation? We have some of the leakiest and, and worst kind of maintained housing in, in, in Europe. Uh, we're, we're going to feel the effects of that uh, increasingly as, as energy prices fluctuate more and the climate climate crisis continues the kind of challenge has always been why this is such an open goal i mean this creates thousands of skilled jobs it's improving people's homes you know something really tangible that you know involves 
the opportunities for the state to create infrastructure that benefits millions of people's lives. Uh, it's a it's a kind of tangible way of showing how climate is interacted with economies, like the perfect policy. Now, we're miles behind. We've, we've, we've lost a decade of opportunity to do this. We have to get moving. And frankly, there's a lot of private business that can, that can come out of this. Like the state is going to have to be the coordinator and the main investor, but the state is doing that so that there is stability for a private sector that wants to create the jobs, that wants to set up the companies that are providing heat pumps, that wants to have the skilled trainees and apprenticeships out there. But you go to a technical college now, they can't train people for jobs that don't exist. They, 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 you know, the state has to take a lead on this. Uh, I wanted to ask about what Rishi Sunak, uh, as prime minister, maybe means for London. You know, clearly Boris Johnson was a London MP, uh, he was a London mayor, and yet it often felt to, to some Londoners, like the levelling up agenda was really a, about kind of taking a, a, a pop at London. And, you know, it wasn't so much about greater investment in, in the Midlands and the North and Wales and so on, but it, w- it was kind of about taking investment away from London. Um, what do you think that, you know, the, how do you think the government should relate to the capital, which is quite a, you know, Britain has quite an unusual uh, kind of composition where it has such a kind of capital-heavy economy, population, cultural scene, technological scene, and so on. You know, what what do you think uh, the government and uh, under Sunak should be? Um, how do you think they should be relating to London? Well, it's a kind of rhetorically very easy and populist thing to do to bash London. It's part of that uh, language around metropolitan elites, despite the fact that we have areas of some of the worst poverty in the entire country, and uh, not only that, but the the kind of visible and clear inequality between postcodes is, is kind of is kind of remarkable and one of the kind of most uh, unique things about London I think compared to other other urban areas the leveling up agenda again has been a kind of rhetorical device more than a more than a re- reality I mean uh, free ports has been the the kind of model right which is what the IMF used to f- force onto uh, you know, countries like Jamaica in the 80s during structural adjustment, you know, the, it's, it's a kind of totally neoliberal way of thinking about what levelling up uh, would be like. Um, now, f- for London, the irony was that, you know, when Liz Trust came in, one of the few things that people spoke about was, well, sh- she won't punish London because London is going to have to be the engine. So if she's, if she's a pro-growth and everything at the expense of growth, then London is going to end up just steaming ahead as we are, you know, structurally weighted in the economy as such. Now that that's over, it'll be interesting to see how Rishi balances that that desire for progress that was in within the party and the kind of rhetorical uh, stamping on London. Now, and it, I mean, I can I can tell a very funny anecdote about levelling up in Wandsworth. I mean, uh, you know, we we did get some levelling up funding. We got levelling up funding for a, a bespoke music theatre in the building that has the Sky Pool in Nine Elms. Um, so, you, you know, you read into that what you will. And, you know, levelling up funding going to the Nine Elms is quite the quite the story, um, particularly in the Embassy Gardens building. Okay, look, last last question on um, Rishi Sunak, I promise. Um, Sunak is, of course, the first person of South Asian heritage to become Prime Minister of the UK. Uh, in fact, the first person of any non-white background to hold the office. He's also the first Hindu to become PM. Uh, but those are not the only records that his premiership has set. He's also, according to some reports, the richest 
political leader in the Western world with uh, uh, an estimated fortune of around 730 million pounds, which is more than 10 times the net worth of Joe Biden. Um, I wondered what you made of all this. Uh, should kind of progressives be celebrating that Britain finally has a brown prime minister or not? I don't think the premiership of Rishi Sunak tells us anything about equality of opportunity in Britain. Um, I am deeply concerned about racism that he will face. Uh, that, that's, that's the kind of extent of my concerns is, is, what, is what he'll be facing. Um, but I think the, the discussions around uh, kind of representation within the party uh, by uh, black minority ethnic uh, uh, politicians is one that kind of highlights just how kind of ludicrous identity politics can sometimes uh, be in the discussion in this, in, the, in this country, because these are figures who are fundamental and not just fundamental, but actively promoting institutional racism at almost every level. Kemi Banadok, Suella Braverman, uh, you know, dreaming of deporting people to, to, to Rwanda. These are, these are, you know, the idea that these, this is a, a, a positive uh, uh, role models are people who fundamentally are upholding the institutions uh, that uh, kind of torment, deport, imprison, and, and, and cause state violence towards communities of colour is, is kind of, you know, I just, I read some of the articles, I think it's remarkable and ridiculous. Since the 1st of October, campaign coalition Just Stop Oil has been demanding an end to all oil and gas exploration and extraction through non-violent direct action across the capital. Videos of protesters have been circulating widely and have ignited fierce debate with some staunchly against their methods and others applauding them for bravery. Building on the civil disobedience tactics utilised by fellow environmental campaign groups like Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain, Just Up Oil activists have created a buzz with varied news-grabbing publicity stunts, including throwing soup at art, a pie at a King Charles Madame Tussauds waxwork, and yesterday spraying orange paint across the facade of luxury car dealerships in Mayfair. Most dramatically, civil engineer Morgan Trowland and another protester successfully blockaded the Dartford Crossing road bridge over the Thames by suspending themselves from the bridge's suspension structure. The campaigners say that action disrupted oil supplies to Kent and the southeast for 36 hours. Trowland, who's 39, said, quote, As a professional civil engineer, each year I renew my registration, and I commit to acting within our code of ethics, which requires me to safeguard human life and welfare and the environment. Our government has enacted suicidal laws to accelerate oil production, killing human life and destroying our environment. I can't challenge this madness in my desk job designing bridges, so I'm taking direct action, occupying the QE2 bridge until the government stops all new oil. He was subsequently arrested after the two-day protest and has been charged. Uh, the protest come as the government was offering more than 100 licenses to companies looking to extract oil and gas in the North Sea, with more than 900 locations now being offered up exploration. So, Aiden, what, what's this all about? Just Stop Oil's protests have kept them in the headlines with, with you know, far more than the tens of thousands of people who marched against Brexit recently. Does that sort of mean they're cutting through? What do you make of this, this wave of protests? I, I think about my own like timeline, right? my own social media timeline and the things that I'm aware of. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being fed images of the orange paint being sprayed and, and, and what's happened uh, with uh, with, with the with the paintings and, and seeing these like very kind of brave young young kids often getting like man you know attacked in the street and, and dragged around and 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 then I think about like like how how much is my timeline filled with what happened in Pakistan 
and the floods. Um, like how much is my timeline filled up with, I think it was like the biggest heat wave ever in China that is like still ongoing. So they are cutting through. They are, you know, I'm, I'm scrolling and, I'm, and they're cutting through and it's reminding me about the climate crisis. But there is a, you know, the real question is why is there a failure for the things that are happening, the realities that they're trying to draw our attention to, that, that, isn't, being, that isn't being covered. So they, and they do this because they know that isn't being covered. Their critique is that no one is taking this seriously, that we are continuing to subsidise oil and gas. And so if their strategy is to, bring the conversation towards this, if they were doing nothing, there would be no conversation whatsoever. One of the critiques is, right, that, you know, aren't there better ways of doing this? And I think, you know, if there are better ways, people would be, people would be doing them. I think I always think of the, the suffragettes, right? You know, the, there was the debate between the suffragists and the suffragettes, but the, the, the main kind of uh, uh, struggle was one in which, uh, <laughs> was one in which they were successful in, 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 in getting the votes. And some of those acts, you know, slashing of paintings the, the famous you know much more kind of extreme uh protest of uh, uh, the woman who threw herself under the under the king's horse you know the, this tradition of trying to use stunts in order to get coverage is is, is a well-known one and i think it will uh yeah continue yeah i mean uh, emily wilding davison is the is the suffragette you were thinking of who um died uh at the race course uh born on the site of my housing estate in greenwich um, and I was thinking about the suffragettes, and you know they would like blow up letterboxes and, and sort of these quite what we we very clearly describe as sort of almost terrorist like acts, um, you know far beyond what is currently ex accepted as peaceful protest today. And yet, you know, rightly that movement are, are hailed as kind of heroes. And, and where would we be without them? Um, and you you do have to wonder, you know, if, if blowing up tele telephone um, post boxes in in, in for the vote was legitimate then, then why is um, throwing some soup at a painting that is protected by glass somehow beyond the pale? Um, what's the double standard there? Look, I wanted to kind of, on this subject of, of, of childish language, um, Suella Braverman returned to the Home Office under Rishi Sunak last week. Um, she described these protests as, quote, guardian reading, tofu eating, woe karate. Um, clearly a kind of culture war tactic to, to, to d distance, uh, to, to sort of smear the protesters. Um, but I wondered, you know, in your experience as a counselor, you must have come into contact with um, protesters uh, of various kinds. Who do you actually see out on the streets uh, campaigning on climate change? Is it all people who eat tofu or is there a kind of broader mix of activists out there? Well, I, I saw the video of the Tufton, 55 Tufton Street, um, Just Stop Oil. Uh, that, I mean, that, that activist was an ex-bouncer ex from South London, um, granddad now. Um, I, think, I think in all areas of politics, there is an over-representation of uh, university-educated, middle-class people. I think that's just a, a, general, a general problem. Um, I think in, in, all, in all movements for the kind of hierarchies and dynamics of class and race and gender play themselves out and 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 it's, it's abundantly clear that you know progressive movements need to keep an eye on that and, and and try and mitigate it so that our movements are representative little more than a week after its public opening the newly refurbished battersea power station development is selling flats for millions of pounds after slashing the number of affordable houses the wandsworth times reported this week 
So the £9 billion refurbishment offers no affordable homes on site. Instead, the 386 affordable homes are tucked away on a nearby site bordering a railway line. Uh, instead, private studio flats in the building start at £560,000 and three-bedroom rooftop apartments begin at a staggering £7 million. This is all in a borough where 11,000 families are on the waiting list for housing and more than 3,500 are classified as homeless. Um, so Wandsworth Council's previous administration struck a deal with the project's developer to deliver just 15% affordable housing at Battersea Power Station, while the standard at the time was about 50% a proportion which was then further reduced to just 9%. However, under new leadership, the refreshed Wandsworth Council now says it is taking radical steps to tackle the housing crisis in the area. And they recently announced all 1,000 new flats in the Authority's Homes Programme will be available for council rent, and as we covered on the show a few weeks ago, are holding developers to far stricter affordable housing rules. So, Aidan, you know, you are the Cabinet Minister for Housing in the new Wandsworth administration. You are the perfect person to explain all this for us. Um, First, though, I wanted to ask you about the grand opening of the power station, um, which, you know, yourself and members of, of, of the new council prominently boycotted. Um, please, can you, you can tell us why did you and your colleagues make that statement by not attending the public opening of one of the area's most famous landmarks? Look, Battersea Power Station has been a figure of my life, my, my entire life. I've lived in Battersea my whole life, you know. Um, I remember sneaking into it as a teenager when it was derelict. It, it's been part of the kind of backdrop of my life. Um, I love the building. I, I really do. Uh, we decided not to attend uh, the, 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 the kind of private party opening on, on the Wednesday, purely on setting a new standard around how we deal with developers in Wandsworth. Um, I don't think they invite me to these things because of my company and, uh, you know, my charm. The, the reason they're inviting us there is so that we... Uh, in our discussions and our negotiations around affordable housing have a kind of softer touch because you build personal relationships you, you know you, you have a, a coffee is not a, a neutral act you know you're, you're building a relationship with someone you become friendly with them so we want to set clear transparent public uh, and an open approach to how we deal with developers and so we thought that was the right thing to do yeah i mean you know it was kind of refreshing uh, you know across the political spectrum we've become used to seeing um, local authorities get very cosy with uh, property developers, and sometimes that's fine, but sometimes it does kind of call into question, you know, who, is, the, is this about um, genuinely public benefit? Uh, one of the things I found most striking about this story was uh, discovering that um, there are 11,000 families on the waiting list for housing um, in the borough. Uh, you, you know, the housing crisis is often seen as like, you know, this enormous, impossible challenge that is so kind of hardwired into the British economy that no one can possibly solve it. But I wondered if you could kind of talk us through some of the things that you and uh, that Wandsworth are doing to try and take on the housing crisis in your borough. We've moved very fast. Um, we, you know, we were elected in May and it's in, in, in September I had the privilege of moving what I thought was a, a, an incredible kind of package um, uh, around re rebalancing uh, housing policy in Wandsworth after 44 years. So some kind of flagships, like you mentioned, are flipping the existing Thousand Homes programme, which was a council-built programme on council land. Um, only 442 of the homes being built were going to be council rent homes, and the rest were going to be uh, uh, kind of private and shared ownership in order to fund that. Um, we think that is a using public land in a, in a terrible way. It's precious, and it's going to run out soon. And so we have flipped it so that every single home we build on, on, on within that scheme will be council rent 
Uh, we've also gone back to secure lifetime tenancies uh, because we think it's important, gives people stability, it, it makes gives people certainty. And also, uh, ironically, people think that it means people are kind of stuck, but actually it means that there's more flexibility of moving people around the stock because they feel less scared that they're going to lose out if they do. Um, and that's helpful for us when it comes to making sure that we use our stock in the, in, in, in the most effective way because, you know, there are lots of people whose kids will move out who, who will end up living uh, alone and because of the bedroom tax, if we can find them a really nice one bedroom and encourage them to move, they will if they know that they're going to get a secu- they're going to have a secure tenancy throughout. Um, so uh, that, that is a really exciting policy. The, the other one is we're introducing landlord licensing so that the private rented sector, uh, you know, we get more inspectors, we get higher standard uh, licensing is, is, I think, is going to become a hot political topic. You know, Sadiq Khan, the mayor, has has talked more about how we need to up standards in the private rented sector, which is quite quite literally the kind of squeeze middle in terms of tenure types. Um, then there's uh, we're actually doing things to protect our resident leaseholders. You know, resident leaseholders who bought under uh, are under right to buy, they they would often be hit with major works bills when we are improving our estates. You know, when we're doing things like insulation or we're putting double glazing in, um, and they would only have ten months. To pay for that, and these would be very large bills. So you've often got people. People kind of assume that leaseholders are often uh, very well off, and they can just take the hit. But they it would kind of come with kind of crippling anxiety, and people would feel like they were going to have to move out of the area. So if, particularly for some of our older leaseholders, that 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 package of support, we're going to give them four years interest free um, in order in, in order to pay things back. Um, and then our affordable housing uh, 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 kind of relationship with developers and, and Section One Hundred Six negotiations. So. Over the last 10 years, so our pipeline of social housing has been really, really artificially limited, given the opportunities available, given how much private development was happening. That's why we've got one of the sixth highest uses of temporary accommodation in the country. Uh, 3,500 people in TA, uh, you know, often with a private landlord and we're paying rents and all that money that could be coming to the council is going into a private pocket. So we're, we're reversing that. Our absolute priority is going to be social housing because it's, it's where the council's pounds and money it goes to those who are most in need but also it's a it's an asset that generates income for, for forever you know the more social housing you have uh you know it's rent that comes back to the council it's housing associations being better funded and it's for those people who are falling through the cracks you know um maybe i'm going to sound like an idiot here but humor me for the sake of uh, others who might be confused about the economics of um developing new council housing because you often hear um People say, oh, you know, we need uh, people in local th- authorities say we need to do a little bit of private housing for sale or for rent in order to um, pay for the council housing that we want to build. Um, that's a kind of common uh, justification uh, used for why there's a, a bunch of private housing in the mix uh, of what is otherwise a kind of council led council housing scheme. Um, but what you've just said is that. Uh, even council housing, even sort of subsidised rent council housing is a form of income or can be a form of income for councils long term. So, you know, what, what's going on there? Does it, does it make the council money to build council housing or does it cost the council money? Depends on your timeframes. Uh, the, 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 the challenge is, is that re- the return to the council is over a long period. But let's say you've got a, a local authority that's been hammered with austerity cuts. It's had its, you know, social housing grants were, were, were cut the moment the Conservatives got in. Uh, they've got huge pressures from all angles. They've got an ageing council stock. Um, they've only just been given the right under Theresa May to take out loans, uh, which previously they were not, not able to do. Um, 
as a council, we are taking on that that challenge and that risk because we think it's the right thing to do. But we know that this, you know, it's uh, it's a long term financial investment. You know, our our repayment program is going to be over fifty years, and so in the minds of a political administration, that can seem like a very long time. We want to think long term because these are homes that, are, you know. We want to be building the Churchill Gardens of the future. You know, if you think about the power station, opposite the power station is Churchill Gardens, municipal social housing, beautiful Riverside, still there standing after it was built in, in, in the 50s. We want a new generation of housing like that that will generate rents back to the council. Well, you know, of course, eventually it's going to pay for itself. I'm so glad you mentioned Churchill Gardens, which was, of course, designed by the architects Powell and Moyer, who are the subject of our final story um, today. Uh, so uh, over in the Barbican, the city, city of London, uh, the architects Shepard Robson and Dilla Scafidio Renfro uh, are reducing the scale of their controversial plans for new office buildings at the Barbican. This is reported in the AJ this week. Um, the scheme would have seen the replacement of Powell and Moyer's 1970s Museum of London and Bastion House on the Barbican estate and has been fiercely opposed by campaigners and residents who earlier this month alleged that the developer, which is the City of London Corporation, had used misleading claims to justify the demolition. So the city has now voted to reduce the size of the proposed blocks, uh, quote, in response to feedback from extensive consultation. Um, they're not reducing them by much. The authority said the width of the building that is going to go on the Museum of London site will now be three metres less wide, while the width of the building on the Bastion House site will be two metres less wide. Uh, but it does add up. Um, uh, the corporation added that detailed plans will now be drawn up and presented next year before a planning application is submitted. Um, I didn't, you know... <sighs> During the pandemic, everybody seemed to be talking about kind of the end of the office block uh, and, you know, what are we going to do with all this office space in the, in, in the centre of town now that flexible working and home working has uh, become, you know, so popular? Certainly, just anecdotally, Open City's office is maybe at capacity two days a week post-pandemic. We're able to do this podcast completely remotely. Uh, even our producer, Poppy, is working from home today. It looks like you're working from home it doesn't, we don't need to be in the same spaces quite as much. So why, why do you think the City of London uh, believes that new office space is the key to their post-pandemic recovery and is pushing forward with this huge new office development? There is something going on. And I, I you know, I, I did a bit of investigation um, before, before speaking to you because it is a phenomenon that is confusing, I think. Um, I think largely some of it is down to this being like, kind of high-end office space for very uh, kind of wealthy companies that are willing to pay the rents. But I think the environmental angle is crucial because these are, these are companies that have environmental targets that they have set themselves um, and to their either shareholders or stakeholders or, you know. And so these buildings offer a way of uh, making themselves uh, carbon neutral, net zero, and paying a premium for it and being in central London and having, you know, the, the workforce and the transport connections and the, the kind of prestige that comes with it. So there's a kind of eco-capitalist revival of office space within, within London, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating that you, your, your sort of research is, is, is pegging this kind of revival in, in post-pandemic office space so much on uh, ecological credentials, because it is the lack of ecological credentials that 
um, many of the campaigners involved in this particular site are kind of pointing to because although I'm sure these new office buildings by uh, Dilla Scafidio and, and, and Shepard Robson would be built to a high standard, that the fact that they rely on demolishing enormous, enormous um, buildings designed by Paul and Moyer will inevitably um, waste a colossal amount of uh, uh, carbon through the kind of embodied energy that's already locked into those existing buildings. Uh, it does sort of seem to me that, that we're kind of running the risk of walking into a new type of greenwashing where um, clients of, of major buildings can commission a kind of whole life carbon report that says, you know, really the most ecological solution here is to knock down <laughs> an existing building and build a high spec new building. Um, and depending on what metrics they use to inform that report and kind of what what uh, climate modeling they do, uh, potentially they can they can uh, get that report to kind of say whatever they like. Yeah, I think maybe I was too subtle in what I was hinting at. Um, that's precisely what I think has happened, um, uh, and and that is precisely what I think the the, the, the model is. The model the model is uh, to frame your to to frame your building, and to some extent, you know, I'm sure some of the new buildings that are being built will be you know remarkable and they'll have some of the best architectural firms doing them and they'll win awards um but the the kind of fundamentals and particularly on a, a site like the barbican i mean i can imagine that the pushback and particularly from your listeners and, and from uh, you know the readers of architects journal on what must be sacrilege to to want to demolish uh, uh paula moyer uh historic historic sites um as retrofit and the climate crisis demands it we are going to have to think seriously about do we just demolish our buildings or do we come up with the ingenious techno technologically advanced ways of making those homes uh making those homes up to standard and, and safe and warm and not have mold and to last for another hundred years um and make sure we don't throw money after doing that on buildings which actually shouldn't they, they can't remain because they were built at a time in which you know standards have changed and they were moving fast because it was post-war housing. You know, there, there, there are genuine conversations around that. Um, it needs to be democratic. It needs to, there need to be ballots on these decisions. It needs to be community-led. Um, and there needs to be a fundamental, you know, I'm happy to soak up bullets about, about infill and about demolition as long as I'm pr producing social housing because I know that the, the overall good is worth it. Fantastic. Um, look, we're sort of out of time, but we just have a few minutes to maybe look at some kind of cultural highlights coming up in London in the next few weeks. Um, one thing that caught my eye, uh, the London Society uh, is doing a debate about whether London should become an independent city state uh, in the manner of kind of Devo Max, uh, you know, Scottish referendum. Maybe London should have a referendum. Um, I imagine it will be kind of slightly fun and uh, maybe a bit tongue in cheek, but um, do you think, you know, would you support more devolution in London? Do you think the mayor should have more powers, for example? How far would you take that thought of devolution in London? I think the mayor should definitely have more powers. I mean, we have one of the weakest uh, executives of any kind of mayor, you know, you think about New York, you think about Paris. I mean, you know, often sometimes just feel so frustrated that Sadiq can't do the things that he desperately wants to do. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a socialist. I think the interest of a working class uh, resident in London is the same as that in Hartlepool. And I think that the, the, you're playing into the hands of the right the more that you push for a kind of isolationist approach um, towards like the, the, yeah. the, the rest of the country. So absolutely more power for the mayor, but um, 
let's stay in the UK. <laughs> I think I'd support that as well. Um, did anything kind of catch your eye in terms of kind of cultural things that our listeners could could uh, watch or see over the coming weeks? I attended a situationist um, uh, performance at the Pelican House in Bethnal Green uh, between developers and social housing activists. There were flares and fireworks and it reminded me that we should use our public spaces to talk politically about housing. It was a kind of creative expression of, uh, it was from a, it's for a comrade's birthday held at Pelican House and he put on this amazing performance, which was about like developers and who owns the city. Um, so that's got me thinking about like how we use our public spaces and our estates to do interesting cultural you know, activities, but also talk about what's happening to our neighbourhoods and the power dynamics at play. Yeah, I, I saw that you guys had shared Quadro's TV show, um, which is which is which very exciting. Um, I think he's a phenomenal, phenomenal figure who has transformed the conversation around housing. I was lucky enough to meet him when I was an opposition councillor. I took him around the Patmore estate. Uh, he went into some buildings that have mould. Now I'm the, now I'm the cabinet housing uh, cab, uh, cabinet member for housing, and he will. I'm sure you know he, he will. Be holding me to account on on you know we have thirty three thousand properties there are, there are always going to be you know cases that fall fall through the cracks and people that that suffer because of it so I think he's really really important I think he holds people like me and people in power that holds our feet to the to the fire and I'm going to definitely watch that this uh, this is the the uh, Channel Four documentary that's that's now streaming um, yeah this kind of remarkable very young housing activist who who sort of exploded onto social media. Uh, calling out uh, crap British housing standards and has now got a, a TV show called, and it's, I think it's called Untold Help My Home is Disgusting, which is a slightly cheesy title, but um, casting light on an incredibly important and shocking issue. Um, it's been an, uh, an immense pleasure to have you on the, the London again. Thank you so much for joining the show. Um, it sounds like you're doing an incredible uh, amount of really positive and exciting work at Wandsworth uh, in a very short amount of time. How can uh, listeners kind of keep track of, of all of those programmes? Where can they follow you? Yeah, so, I mean, follow me on Twitter, Iden, at Iden Um If you... Uh, we're trying to come up with exciting ways in which we talk about what's happening. We made a video recently about how the HRA works, which is the housing revenue account, to just use our position to do kind of pedagogical work around how things work. Now, that's be for a kind of niche audience, but if you're into, if you're into that kind of thing... Uh, uh, send me an email. I've also written about our, 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 our housing policies in the, for Navarra Media, which you can check out. I've written extensively about Battersea Power Station in Tribune magazine. Um, but if you're interested and want to offer ideas and be part of a progressive you know, policy uh, policy program in Wandsworth and, and be involved in housing, please just send me an email. Um, you, can, you can just Google it and you'll find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible 
and equitable city. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.